Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I am thrilled to welcome back Impex Beverages as the Whiskey Ring Podcast presenting sponsor. Each month, we'll be talking about a new set of single casks, maybe feature a chosen distillery or a single cask from a chosen distillery. Listen for the mid-roll for more info on this month's offerings. And now, a brand new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. We are continuing our somewhat unintentional Irish theme for recording this month with Waterford Distillery. So this is a distillery out of, you guessed it, Waterford in Ireland. But they're doing a few things a little bit differently. And if you've seen some of my posts about some of their products, uh, they're also an award winner, the Whiskering Awards at the end of the year last year. Um, I'm kind of a big fan of theirs. So I'm thrilled to bring on Mark Newton to represent Waterford Distillery and uh, make it through my gauntlet of questions. So Mark, welcome. Well, thanks very much for, for, well, for a start, for engaging so deeply about Waterford. I mean, you're a, you're our kind of drinker. You're a, you're a very curious person. So yeah, happy to, happy to shoot the breeze with you. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, let's kick it off with a, uh, a brief origin story of, of Waterford. Of, of Waterford. Well, <laughs> brief, brief, brief is, is, is the challenge. I'll try and be very brief on this. Um, I suppose everyone knows Mark Rainier, the, the guy who um, probably most will probably know him from um, Brook Laddie when he resurrected Brook Laddie. But of course, Mark, and I mean, I suppose all of the, the bits I'll tell you quickly have a direct influence on Waterford, actually. So Mark was a uh, a wine merchant, importer, bottler um, in London, um, owned, um, owned a wine store there. Um, and then got absorbed into the, it's a fantastic story in and of itself, which I won't go into, but it involved a very expensive bottle of whiskey that you want. Um, and um, he he got into, uh, he bought Brook Gladdy in 2000, end of 2000, beginning of 2001, um, and sold out in um, 2012. And he was in the wilderness, but Mark, obviously being a wine person, um, coming from that wine background, a lot of the ideas that you see at Waterford today biodynamics terroir you know that comes straight from his experience as a as a, a, a wine merchant in the in the 1980s and, and 90s you know, he was exploring the ideas of terroir as the french were i suppose rediscovering it so various generations coming back to the land um the ideas of biodynamics were you know really um being talked about in in alsace and and in, in, in other parts of france chateauneuf de Papa, i think that's where mark first came across it um, so these are all sort of feeding into the mix, and he finds himself in 2014 with a with a blank sheet of paper. You know, how would he do this from scratch if he was going to do it from scratch? Um, and there are, there are two sort of key points um, that feed into it. One was um, the engineer, chief engineer at Brooklady, Duncan McGilvery. Um, he always said the best barley in the world that he ever came across always came from um, the southeast of Ireland. In fact, it would have come out of Waterford Port, ironically. Um, and that was being distilled in Scotland. I mean, there's something right there, isn't there? Barley from another country being distilled in another country, and it's still Scotch whiskey. But that's another. That's a sort of side issue. But that he always remembered there was good, you know, good quality barley coming from this part of the world. And then in 2014, um, a Guinness brewery, a former Guinness brewery, comes up for sale, um, and it it's. Um, it, it was built in 1792, reconfigured at extraordinary expense into a state-of-the-art brewery in, I think it's 2004. And then, for reasons that never quite seem apparent, this, you know, the stroke of an accountant's pen or something like that, it, 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 Guinness withdraws into um, Dublin. So 
Um, it used to make um, a Guinness extract for export. So it's a really high-tech facility and it just came on the market. Um, now, for, for, the, for the real old guard amongst your uh, listeners will remember there were a pair of stills, or one still, copper still outside the front of Brook Valley for many years. In fact, as a whiskey nerd, I managed to go on honeymoon um, and to my wife, who just wanted to go to a Scottish island. So I said, well, if you're going to go to any Scottish island, you may as well go to Isla. Um, I don't know why. I'm sure there's something interesting there. Um, and yeah, I had a I had a photo taken in front of one of the stills, which Mark said had brought over to um, to Waterford Distillery. Obviously, not knowing that was going to be the the future of that um, those stills. So so it's this 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 sort of fortunate um, you know occurrence of this this brewery just magically coming for sale at the right time when yeah, Mark had the resources and had the investors from uh, uh, from his time at Brook Valley to come and back him and say, you know what you're mad enough to give it another go. Um, and, you know, with this blank sheet of paper, how would you do all of this stuff um, from scratch? How would you, I guess actually what are, what is Waterford trying to do? Um, you know, it's, it's quite cool looking to Mark talking about his days as an independent bottler with, um, you know, the Murray McDavid brand. I don't know if, if, um, if, if you're familiar with that. It's still going uh, today. Um, but, you know, Mark was bottling, um, you know, really aged, uh, really old, interesting whiskies. Um really old stocks and they just sort of ran out and he couldn't find the compelling whiskey. So, you know, Mark's always tried to set out to either in my interpretation of it, rediscover this sort of glorious age of single malt, you know, really flavorsome, flavor driven, no corner cutting um, uh, spirit production um, versus this idea of, well, actually, how do they create complexity in the wine world? It's a totally different um, view on what complexity is and how to assemble that. Um, terroir bill being a sort of building block of complexity and you're layering them together in cuvées to create literally more flavor um uh, as an approach and that's that's sort of all informs waterford really that's the that's the background to it that's and, and i i suppose how did i come into this well i i mentioned i was the whiskey nerd i was a whiskey um well in my spare time i was a writer um the website malt review which became me um, writing bits and pieces for magazines, including Whiskey Magazine, and somehow, um, I think I think it was actually a, a random story on writing the history of the railways in Speyside, which was my first gig for Whiskey Magazine. And being a desperate whiskey writer, I thought, yes, I'll do that. And didn't know anything about railways, and had to go up and do some research, which was quite interesting. Um, and um, became a regular reviewer for Whiskey Magazine, um, a taster actually for um, a year. I was one of the tasters for Whiskey Magazine. Um, and so I was the nerd who had always been a fan of what Mark had done at Brook Um And um, so yeah, I, I was writing about some of the Isla Bali whiskies when they first came out. You know, I was a real, I think what, what happened at that period of time pre-acquisition Brook Laddie just got me so excited about whiskey. I, I just thought, this is great. This is against the grain of the industry. Um, there's some mad stuff going on. Um, you know, there was all sorts of interesting bottlings they were putting out. But this idea of, I suppose you had the old distillery stocks and moving into the new production. You'll see this sort of sea change in Brookladia at a certain point in its production career where it had, um, it, um, it, it, it had, <laughs> Mark would describe it as he, he didn't buy a distillery. He bought a load of stock and it came with a distillery um, and they had to try and sell and, and position this the stocks that they had um, to help raise money to fund distillation of their own barley scottish barley isla barley so you have this old stock which is made under a very different way um transitioning to the newer um stuff so i i, I yeah i think it's 2000 
uh, mid 2007. They distilled Rockside Farm, I think it was. Um, anyway, so the Isle of Barley whiskies, I got I, the idea of terroir. That was really the first time anyone had talked about it. Um, so I've been an admirer from from you know the late 2000s hens. Um, not 2010s, 2000, well, between 2008 and 2012, when it got sold, I was really peak whiskey nerd um, at that point. And um, and and so I just decided, um, well, anyway, Whiskey Magazine, this is what it was, Whiskey Magazine was, was, was doing a feature on um, Irish, the new wave of Irish distilleries. Um, and it was 2015. And I said, um, you know what, this is pretty exciting exciting happening in waterford you probably want to do speak to this guy and i'll go and I'll, I'll speak to him so i'd actually at about the same time interviewed mark from malt review the, the website um which was i think the first interview um of of, of with mark since he'd bought waterford uh, the site at waterford and so um yeah that i had a conversation with him we got into the detail um and he said i might need some help um, do you want to come for dinner? I think we went for dinner in Edinburgh. Um, and and I, I said something ridiculous. I mean, bearing in mind, this is a whiskey hero. So, you know, no apologies for being a bit pathetic about it. But I said something along the lines of, do you know what? I'd give my right arm to be involved in a project um, of this nature. So started off doing some communications and that became more and more. And suddenly, you know, we needed a bottle. So involved in the project to, to just, you know, to, and come up with a bottle um work with a great agency around that and, and you know step by step here i am um heading up the brand um and so also alongside this this you know the whiskey journey was building um mark building renegade rum distillery in grenada which I won't, I won't go too much into the details of that but it's you know it's 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 pretty much the same energy um as as, as with waterford is with whiskey a little bit more precise and there's a difference there that whereas in 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 barley you know we don't run the farms we source um the barley from the from the growers but in in grenada we we run the farms ourselves so it's a, it's an extra layer of involvement um but that's i think i'll try to condense that into a few minutes anyway no i think that was that was a fantastic uh condensation and people know that you know, we do a lot of research for these episodes to to almost skip that question if you will but um or or to condense it and we very rarely get to go into it too much but uh you know just to some of the to throw out some of the names of the you know sites and podcasts that i've pulled from if you want to hear more about the origin story of it obviously malt review um you're right up also for uh for uh whiskey magazine you know whiskey topic uh a whiskey cast episode from March of 2018 went just before the first distillate was being bottled at Waterford whiskey sisters podcast. You know, there are a number of, and of course the numerous, numerous um, interviews that, that Mark uh, Rainier and, and the rest of the team have, have given as well. So there's, there's plenty of sources to also go into more depth on the origin, but I think that was a pretty damn good condensation. I gotta say. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's, it's not easy getting these stories into, into, um, uh, you know, five minutes. I remember someone the other day asked Mark, "Well, how did you come to buy Brook Laddie then?" And I just have to, I just have to walk away because that was going to be another half an hour of how that happened. Because the, yeah, so we do well, we do well to condense these stories. But um, yeah, it's, I think that's that's, I suppose one of the great things about these projects is it's an awful lot to say, um, and it's all it all begins with production, begins and ends with production. Really, we're not spinning stories at the other end. It's all 
talking about you know how where flavor comes from and that's ultimately what, what the projects are about so yeah we do um they're they're complex issues they need a lot of time to unpack absolutely so you mentioned in the uh in the intro that uh mark we're gonna call him mark r because we've got mark n on mark here r, yes but i uh, come from a wine background and then uh buying and owning brooklotic for several years mm. also reminds me i do have a bottle of that rockside farm um whiskey and it's excellent both of those were uh both implicitly and explicitly involved in terroir it was it was an mm. integral part of uh, certainly in the wine world and then mark kind of made it part of brooklotic as much as possible mm. um and there's there's a whole podcast series that could just go off that question and premise alone. But in coming to Ireland and in creating Waterford, mm. um, was there a concern that this idea of terroir that was already kind of facing a little bit of resistance in the Scotch world would face mm. the same resistance in um, in Ireland, particularly by the Scots yeah. coming in to do it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think... I don't want to speak for, for the Irish view on things. I come, I come at it from the outside and looking in on that world. But I think there was a lot more open-mindedness in Ireland for a, a lot of the Waterford project, actually. It was, it was, you know, Mark does speak about the resistance in Scotland in production um, of, of you know, that, that's, that approach to production. Why should we bother doing it like this? We've always done it this other way. Um, and, of course, Scotch is a lot more it's older it's more entrenched in that way of doing things um so yeah i think in in terms of ireland it, it even in what you can produce in ireland there's a lot more that you can do then maybe inherently within ireland there is more of an open mind and certainly i think um i've, I've not really come across any what, <laughs> what we tend to call terroir denial um we've not really come across much of that in ireland it mostly comes from not just Scotland, actually, I'd say England. Um, a lot of it comes from 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 people in England, um, and you get the odd producer in Scotland who says, you know, they used to distill um, two different barley varieties and they couldn't discern much difference, which is not necessarily incorrect, which I can get into a little bit um, later. But you know, a lot of modern barley varieties share too much genetic material, so they're not that different. So you wouldn't get that much difference. But we've we certainly so. I mean, to, to address that that point in in a, in a couple of ways. Mark had, had become a, but he'd become used to a sense of resistance in the industry. And I say this in a very hand wavy kind of way, like what is the industry? It's, it's made up of so many different personalities and views and opinions anyway, but there is a, a, a way of thinking that this isn't how you do things. So he'd already experienced that. And, and actually from a production point of view, so there's an academic and a production point of view. Um, the production point of view is, um, he knew what he needed to do to um, uh, to do this properly because I don't think even at Brook Laddie, yeah, it was it was testing, it was trialing, but they didn't have a couple of things that they needed to. What I would say, you really need a claim if you're going to make a claim to be terroir driven, which is not just about local barley. I think that's the starting point. But it's about different sources of local barley. And it doesn't have to be local. You could get as long as it's kept separate, and that's the key thing. As long as they're kept separate. Um, then, then you can start to experiment and taste differences from different places and, and de detect an influence of terroir. But you need um, something which is very boring to describe, but it's a bespoke 
barley storage facility. There's a great um, paper by um, Rob Arnold on um, Farrawar and, and, and Bourbon. And actually, I think it's to do with different grains of corn um, rather um, than, um, than specifically on terroir. But he says, if you're going to do this seriously as a producer, you need to be able to keep all these individual crops individual. In, and keep them in their separate bays and keep them completely isolated from the moment they're harvested all the way through production to the moment you distill it and then in barrel. You, know, you need to keep that entirely um, separate. So we had to build um, what we call the Cathedral of Bali, um, which is a bespoke storage warehouse that keeps all of the crops separately. And the whole it's, it's the logistical centre of, of our entire operation. It's, it's kind of the unsung hero. And he didn't have that at Brooklady. He didn't necessarily have that facility to keep all of these grains separate. So he came in with a production view, like, okay, I'm going to do it seriously. This is what I need. And he, so he kind of, I don't want to say he tested it at Brooklady. He, he, he was doing it at Brooklady, but now it was on another scale entirely. So he'd learned what the resistance was. He'd learned what he needed um, and blank sheet of paper um, could do it. And again, in Ireland, he would describe this as everyone's up for the challenge. Um, there's no, there's no, um, no resistance, no, why should we do that? Um, and we've been fortunate with our partners, um, Minch Malt, who are a small malting um, facility um, to help set that up. And I mentioned the academic side as well. Um, and this is something we, he was working on from, from day one when he was in Ireland. Um, Mark had always been told, um, oh, there's no proof of terroir and whiskey. Um, why should we believe you? Um, so he set out to find a team of scientists who could help demonstrate what everyone in the world I mean the thing that gets me about terroir is it's we've gone to such great lens but it's such a bloody obvious thing if you plant something in one place it's going to grow differently to how it goes grows in another and you're going to get different flavors from those places it's just is <laughs> this is the case for all kinds of food all kinds of drinks spirits and wines and and everything in between and why is whiskey any different why would it assume it's any different well Maybe because it's not in most people's interests to for, for, for terroir to be a good thing. If you pick apart the fact that you can grow it in different places in the same country and you get different flavours, what's it going to mean when you can ship barley halfway across the world and still pass it off as scotch or whatever? Um, and uh, where's the provenance? So it, there, it, 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 I think this is the, the, the crux of it. It, it, spo it exposes a lot of awkward questions. So with the academic work in particular, um, we found a guy who actually wrote a paper on a very similar um, experiment in um, in beer and terroir and beer. Um, a guy with a wonderfully appropriate name, Dr. Dustin Herb, um, who um, is a great young scientist. Annoyingly, he looks a bit like Clark Kent, Superman. You know, he's, he's a good-looking scientist, which is smart, smart as well. So he's a very, very bright guy. Um, and uh, so he'd already written about this in beer, and Mark had come across his paper. Um, and said, look, what would it take to to look at this in in whiskey? Because it's it's only an extra stage um, as part of the process. So, um, so Dustin and um, Chugas, which is the Irish state, I think it's sort of private and public um, hybrid um, agricultural body. So the government agricultural body um, and a team involving some Waterford staff um, and our maltsters. You know, it's, it's quite a quite a broad team who came together to discover to study the influence of terroir in lab conditions, I should say, which is, it makes it watertight. Um, and, and to sort of, basically, um, it was two varieties going in two different locations across different harvests. Um, and it used um, gas chromatography 
um sorry actually more than that it's gas chromatography olfact i can never even i'm not even going to pronounce the full the full thing but it, a very clever bit where you basically you can see the, the the compounds and identify them with sensory analysis at the same time and so it's very very clever stuff um and well hey presto there's terroir it's it, it exists who knew so so that's that's the lab based thing and we're actually extending the academic work into just going back to what i said about the production side like keeping all of these um crops separately you know we've built up a library of well over 100 single farm origins you know, distinct distillations i mean every, this is the thing about Warford. every week uh, pretty much every week we're, we're, we're distilling an inherently different Waterford whiskey. It comes from a different farm, or it's a different barley variety, or it's a heritage variety, or a biodynamic, or an organic, or a peated. Everything is is completely different. It's not like we've got the same homogenous blob of Waterford whiskey, which we're finishing this barrel or whatever, just to create another product. They're inherently different. They're each a distinct thing in their in their own right. So we've built up an, an extraordinarily large library of spirit, and this is what. Um, Angelita at the distillery um, overseas with, with Dustin Herb and Neil Conway, our head brewer. Um, you know, we're, we're essentially over um, four or five harvests now. Um, and we're mapping out with a sensory panel, terroir, basically. All of the variety um, uh, in flavours that we're getting, you know, it's been run for a sensory panel, we're recording it all, and we're going to put that through the great academic machine to see, well, what are we getting? Because we've had a few harvests now, so we should really start to unpack um, what this is, is looking like. And even if you took terroir out of the equation, I find you know, the organics and the biodynamics um, question quite interesting as well, because um, there's like a, a scale and it goes up to 15 um, on the, you know, multi fruity dried fruits, you know, the various sort of um, sensory attributes of different, um, different spirits. Um, the conventional varieties go up to about, you know, more or less five or whatever on the scale and, and it, each individual one. Um, the organics grade a little bit higher. They go; they're scoring up to seven on these sensory scales, and the biodynamics, in a in a in a pleasingly spinal tap way, hit eleven. Um, they go up to eleven on the, on the sensory scale. So, you know, it, it's fascinating. We're learning. We're learning about all of this stuff. You know, we don't we didn't have any answers to begin with, um, but it's pretty cool finding out along the way. And maybe it was. A kind of leap of faith at the start you know mark would have known from what he was doing at brook Lally that there are going to be differences so perhaps it was less of a leap of faith for, for him i suspect but um but but to be able to sort of play with all of these now and just just see the variety we're getting particularly on some of the heritage grains as well um it's uh yes yeah, it's, it's a very enjoyable experience so um i'm not sure what the question was actually it's something to do with resistance wasn't it um to, to terroir and um uh, but uh, well, actually, this is a, this is a good point. I suppose all of what I talked about and explained is, you know, we've gone out of our way to demonstrate, to show, to bring people along with us. Actually, we weren't trying to hit people over the head with this stuff. We were just curious, and we wanted other people to be curious as well. And actually, to just simply not deny outright, without even being open-minded enough to to to, to do this idea. Now, as I said, why should whiskey be any different to any other industry, drinks industry on the planet? What's so special about barley that it's different to every every other you know crop? Um, so um yeah so i think with all of that work with all of this you know this the, the narrative around Wardsford, people are open-minded and particularly the new generation of drinkers or, or people who maybe weren't well let's, tell you what, let's put it this way we, we, you can go to some whiskey shows with, with Wardsford, and there's, there's 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 a couple of types of, of drinkers you know broadly speaking 
there are there are many people who are into their age statements um don't necessarily want to know about the raw materials um they, they possibly want to just collect age statements various age statements of the favorite that's 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 fine but they're not really interested at all in what waterford has to say and that's okay you know, this, this is, you know, they've got their own you know, sandbox to play and that's always you know, something for everyone but it's very much a different type of drinker and i would say it's a it's a newer um it's not as you say it's not really new anymore but yeah there's, there's definitely a sea change and has been a sea change in the types of people coming into whiskey who are really interested in flavor they they want to know actually what's in their drink and where it came from and what are these differences um yeah time, times are changing so the resistance i think has gone away you still get the odd the odd grumble out there i quite i quite enjoy i mean my favorite grumble is actually not to do with terroir it's when someone comes up to me and says oh biodynamic it's all marketing isn't it um and i get quite <laughs> i get quite lively about that but um yeah i don't think there's really resistance today anywhere near like the sort of the wars we used to get into when we first set out and it was it was quite hard it's psychologically quite hard you know you've got people just um yeah message on twitter or just not abuse people got fairly thick skins about all of this stuff but it was it was fairly dicey for a long period of time anyway and particularly since we the academic project was out there um, and people have been able to taste and explore along with us. I think it's 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 kind of gone away, to be honest. Um, yeah, I mean that was a very long answer, probably even a different answer for a different question. But but it hopefully I covered some of that um, off for you. Absolutely, no, and it did touch on a couple other topics that we're going to uh, get to, which is completely fine. And uh, before going into the next question, I just wanted to mention that one of the little tidbits you said was that England, in particular, was a mm. Uh, somewhere where there was perhaps more resistance than mm. in Ireland or even Scotland. And it mirrors uh, a conversation I had recently with John Glazer, uh, a compass box, which would be another episode coming out uh, pretty soon, actually, if it hasn't come out before this episode. And where he was saying, you know, when he was first, those two first casts of hedonism that he created as a blend, uh, the people in Scotland were thinking, oh, this is great. This is interesting. This could potentially save our industry as it was pretty stagnant or even dropping. And yet people in England, particularly in London were very against it. It was, yeah, it's a blend. It's grain whiskey. It's this or that. So it was actually an easier sell in Glasgow and Edinburgh than it was in London. And as you were describing the kind of path that Waterford took and the path that the term terroir in whiskey it just seemed to parallel quite nicely with, with John's experience as well. So maybe it's just something stodgy about being in the South. Who knows? Well, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, cultural differences, cultural divides. I mean, we, I, I've always felt, you know, Waterford being Irish might get a harder time in Scotland. Um, I mean, it's certainly interesting, isn't it? You, you sort of, you know, I get to see behind some of the, um, the online comments, um, on a sort of macro scale so you're seeing facebook comments where we might run a post and you know one of the biggest gripes is oh you're spelling whiskey wrong and then you have to actually it's quite a delight to point out to people that actually they're wrong um so um but you do tend to see quite a lot of scottish sort of you know i don't know what it is just simple very base simple national rivalry against um against irish whiskey and, and the irish producing it so it's a different kind of um, it's not. I wouldn't call that intellectual in the slightest. It's just very base um, reactions from the Scots to the Irish. Um, but yeah, the English. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. You would have thought 
you know, uh, been exposed to sort of other kind types of drinks and, and you know, wine or whatever, that people might be more open-minded. I don't know. Um, yeah, who knows on that? Who knows? Maybe it's the type of whiskey drinker, the collector, of someone who was used to pretty good, um, the pretty good days where Port Ellen cost forty quid a bottle, and you know, that's those times of those times of change, unfortunately. Um, yeah, who knows? Man, those days. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I, I can't remember it being £40. Pounds. I think it was £80 pounds a bottle. That's probably yeah. the, the one I can remember. But even so, even so. I'd take that. I'd take that for eight, even an eight, 10 year old Port Ellen at this point. I would take that um, for sure. And then all of Japanese whiskey. And I. Um, oh, my God. Japanese, yeah. I, I, I drank so much Kuruizawa. I went, unless it was 10 years ago or 11 years ago. Uh, yeah, probably 11 years ago when you could get that quite easily now. You think the prices that's going up now, it's just insane. But um, hey. I enjoy drinking it at least. Yeah, now um, Shizuoka sort of has the old stills from Karuzawa, or one of the stills from Karuzawa, and has been distilling on it. And it's about to come out, uh, at least in the US market. I think it's been out in Japan. It's coming to the US market around now. Um, I got a taste to try the Prologue K, which was that kind of sample bottle, almost like an EP instead of a CD. Wow, just showed my age. And um, <laughs> even at five to six years old, the stuff from the Karuzawa stills, even in a new distillery, is excellent it's so good yeah, yeah. but it's yeah, also yeah. like it's also like 300 dollars 200 for a 500 mil bottle so that's yes okay and <laughs> they, they know what they're doing then don't they oh yeah they they know the name carries carries the weight um for sure at waterford so many things about waterford and so much about what waterford does seems and uh probably is very intentional uh, you're intentionally using, for example, certain controls like the same yeast strains, the same uh, or very similar casking for you know, across the board, as many controls as possible so that you can show uh, both scientifically and qualitatively that terroir exists, that there's a difference between them. So if you shut off all the other controls, you can say, all right, this is the only variable. This is the thing that's changing, mm -hmm. i.e., because the two products taste differently, therefore, the changes in the barley or the yeah or the biodynamic I mean, versus organic yeah yeah I mean that's that's I mean that's that's if you've hit the nail on the head there yeah we, we want we want the barley to talk um, but then again what is whiskey made from why does what why does it not taste like a rye or a bourbon it's because of the grain because it is made from barley so barley is what we are primarily um, interested in but it, you know the thing to stress i guess is we we i would i would say it's like giving every farm's crop of barley the same opportunity through the distillery but it will behave differently um and that's something we don't control um and we wouldn't want to we, we want to let the barley do its own thing um and that that comes from the moment it it is at the distillery you know the grains can be different sizes so a head brewer will have to adjust the um the hydro mill, which is a very unusual anaerobic wet mill, you know, it's not um, the harsh milling, the dry milling that the industry tends to get. Um, it's got a hydro mill, which was again this bonkers bit of kit left in from the old brewery. You just wouldn't get that in a distillery. Um, and so he'll have to adjust the the the, the mill gap um, to accommodate different sizes of grains. And then they'll, and again, this is from different harvests, different crops. They'll begin to behave differently all the way through. You know the the um, and we've got some very unusual kit. You know, we've got we've got what we call our 
technological trinity, the hydro mill, um, uh, is is the first part of that. We've got an incremental mash converter, so it's not a mash ton. Um, it's this converter that goes through to a hydro, um, sorry, a, a mash filter. You do see one or two of these around, and the mash filters again, very unusual bit of kit to get in a distillery, but it's like a series of pneumatic plates squeezing the hell out of the you know the the water from the draft. So, um. Again, to get you know, this is it, you can run that in two ways. You can run it for economy to to, to to split through it all really quickly, I suppose, or you can you can run it for flavor maximization. And I think that's the fundamental point of the Waterford project. You know, we're not actually running a science experiment because that's not very fun to taste. Well, we've got the science experiment running parallel. It is about creating the most flavorsome liter of alcohol possible and not the cheapest. Um, that starts with barley. We let it do its thing through the. You know, we've got this unusual kit to begin with. Um, you know, the mash filter. You know, we, we speculatively, does that give us more polyphenols? You know, there's, there's questions about this kit. It's just not been used before, so it's it's really fascinating. Um, the fermentation. You know, okay, yes, it's a it's a it's, it's a standard yeast across all of the the farms. So we, we don't want to influence that that barley. No, we don't want to get it. And there's actually, there's ways even in Ireland you can. Um, you can influence the barley, even in malting, you can add various things, enzymes to the malting process, which we do not do. We want it to be completely, and this is things that don't get talked about, you know, we want it to be totally natural. The fermentation, we give, we allow about 120 hours per, you know, single farm origin distillation. And yet, some can go on for a, a, a lot longer than that. Um, we allow for a, a secondary, and that allows, sorry, for a secondary malolactic fermentation. Uh, to take place, which is something more commonly associated with the wine world. And then we run the stills, you know, low and slow, it, it, basically a third of the rate the stills are meant to run at, um, you know, trickle distillation, and we take a very stingy middle cut. Um, you know, we don't want to impinge on the, the uh, not the Nazis as such, but we, you know, we want clean purity of flavour. And, and so we leave, I can't remember what the calculation is now, but we leave a hell of a lot of potential whiskey on the table because we don't want you know, to, to infringe on the on the on that, I think it's like a floating ten degree middle cut, um, and then that goes into the best wood money can buy, and that's that's a lesson Mark learned directly at Brooklady. Um, I said he bought a load of stock um, that came with a distillery. Well, he would tell you a lot of that stock came in very very tired wood, very tired wood that had been used six seven times over. It was doing nothing for the whiskey, um, and he had to buy some good wood. And then started um, the process of, I think he called it acing at the time, advanced cask evolution, um, something along those lines, which is now more commonly known as finishing and has pretty much been abused by every distillery on the planet now as, as, as um, you know, another another way to, to eke out different ways, ways of um, different products anyway. Um, but Mark learned that you need good wood from the start. So we don't finish because we start properly in the best oak on the planet and because it's island not just oak you know we can we can experiment with them um, uh, you know acacia wild cherry and a few other oddities that we've got tucked away which in my view are nowhere near as good as oak i think oak is is best for a reason um and you know, we've got some even unusual oak species we've got andean oak from colombia for example but the broad the most of it is french and american um either fresh you know, first fill or, or virgin oak but it is you know, some of the most expensive barrels on the planet. Um, at one stage, a, a third of our production cost was on wood. I don't know what that is post-war in Ukraine and what that's done to fluctuation prices and energy prices and all the, the shit show that um, that's come off the back of that. But you know, we're, we're spending just you know, 
proportionally more, you know, Mark would say more than any other distillery is spending on wood. Um, and we don't even talk about the wood. We're talking about the barley because it's the stuff that goes into the cask. That's where that's where the flavour is. And it, you know, yes, it's ameliorated by wood, but we have a different cask. We have you identify we have this, you know a similar portfolio for each distillation, and that's so we can actually put together a harmonious bottling of each single party. Like I said, each one is a different Waterford whiskey. What is Waterford? It's just this, this, this myriad of, of of very different individual, um, unique. From the ground up, literally from the ground up, different um, whiskies. Um, so, again, I've forgotten what the question was um, about control. Yes, so we give everything the same, uh, the same opportunity. It goes into the same sort of process, but it's it's behaving differently. And again, when that particular is in cast, it behaves differently. It's, it's fascinating. It's weird. It's it's it's. Um, you know, I've, I've remember just some really good times um, in Net Head Distillers, Ned's lab, um, and he just sort of puts together prototypes. And you think, well, how are some just different to others? Like, it, and from different re- different counties, just tasted some didn't have as much life at, at two or three years, and some at some 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 other regions. It was really interesting. And then you put the heritage grains in there, and they're behaving differently as well. And some are just, you know, the spirit goes into the kind. Like, take Hunter for example, and the heritage grain Hunter. Um, which was introduced in the 19, 1959, phased out in 1972. Um, really known affectionately in, in the um, in the brewing world in particular. Um, you know, we were working with part of a with the Department of Agriculture and you know, uh, propag- who propagated from scratch from a 50 gram packet of seeds um, enough barley to, to have a distillation. And um, you know, very exciting, very very um, uh, um, sort of cutting edge stuff. Even though it's sort of going back in time because I mentioned earlier most modern barley varieties in fact this is one of the things with our academic work we couldn't attribute flavor variation to barley variety in the same way that we could to terroir um why 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 would that be the case and so going back to that you know the, the possible distiller who 20 years ago said they tried a couple of different barley varieties and there wasn't much difference well maybe they were right um because they're they're basically cousins or kissing you know, brothers and sisters. They're from the same lineage. Um, they, they share too much genetic material to have much flavor variety. So if you want, and this is the same for tomatoes or uh, you know, any other kind of um, uh, food stuff, and you look into it, you, there'll be people there moaning, it didn't taste as good as it used to. And do you know what? They're right. It didn't. Because all of the flavor, you know, in, in, in very noble pursuits of you know, increasing yield to be able to feed enough people, and I'm not sure it's that noble in, in whiskey terms or beer terms. Um, it's um, it, simply to have, um, you know, to, to increase yield has has the, the expression of flavour been left to one side. And so that's what the Heritage Project was about. Very exciting. And yet when I tasted the spirits of, of Hunter, I wasn't that impressed. To be, I'm just a bit disappointed. I thought this, was, this, isn't, this isn't as intriguing as some of the modern prices. What's going on here? And yet, boy, after three years, that's one of my favourite whiskies by a long way. It's so you just don't know how this stuff behaves. It's it's you know genuinely very exciting. Um, but yeah, we're we're learning. We're learning. Um, yeah, again, not sure what question I answered there, but um, um, yeah, all good, all good. Yeah, the I noted originally that the the barley varietals using the barley varietals being used today it's usually either you know concerto laureate golden promise something like that and um it, yeah there's some there's some flavor variation but it's not 
not a lot. It's very close to each other at this point. And, um, but we're seeing a little bit different in at least the American sphere of doing more trials with rival idols, for example. So yeah. in, in the same way that you brought back Hunter, I was bringing back Rosen or Danko, you know, these other yeah. idols that have more I, flavor. I mean, it's very interesting. There was, there was, um, um, uh, so we, 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 we've distilled Hunter, Goldthorpe, Old Irish, and we're exploring Sprat Archer and a few other um, heritage brains as well. So we're doing, you know, we're going back in time about, well, yeah, Goldthorpe was the turn of the 1900s or there or thereabouts. Old Irish was perhaps a little bit earlier. Um, it gets murky. The records aren't great um, on, on some of these things. But, um, you know, we've, what the Department of Agriculture in Ireland have been doing for several years, actually, um, uh, it was quite amusing to see recently in Scotland, I think it was Harriet Watt and, or another research institute, um, and it hit the news in, 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 in the BBC um, to say, hey, we think it's a good idea to start exploring all these heritage grains. And actually, well, where have you been the last five, ten years? And everyone else has been doing it and banging on about the fact that there's a really interesting flavour to be found from the part. I mean, it's all good. It's all, I say that in jest. It's all very good that people have finally realised that the flavour starts with the grain that's that's the source of the flavor so um you know why not exploit that and that's 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 literally that's what you know going back to the idea of water being a flavor maximization project um that's really you know it starts with the raw material well how can you get as much flavor variation from the raw material so terroir is the bleeding obvious one let's plant it in different places and see what it tastes like that's one thing then there's the barley variety. Okay, if modern varieties aren't giving as much to work on, what does the past give us? Um, then there's how you farm it organically or biodynamically. And the biodynamic stuff, you know, I, I personally love. I love the, the, the sort of thinking behind it. I love what they're doing. I love actually how, you know, biodynamics has influenced even conventional agriculture today. You know, people talk about soil regeneration as the hot topic in agriculture and farming. Yeah, but biodynamic guys, that's kind of what it was always about. Um, fundamentally creating a turbocharged microbially turbocharged soil um to create very very healthy flavorsome um plants that we could then get more flavor from um and it's it's yeah it's very quick and now we've got our biodynamic growers are growing the heritage varieties um and so they're crossing the streams which is quite interesting as well because um i think they saw um a slight so you know converting to biodynamics the yield is less Heritage varieties, the yields are inherently less. But when the heritage varieties were grown on the biodynamic farm, they saw a little uplift because the, the heritage varieties, take Hunter, for example, you know, they've got much longer roots than modern varieties. So the Hunter, um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite good. I'm sure we've got some pictures online somewhere, which I'll, I'll try and dig out if I can. But you, you pull up the plant and it's got much longer roots than a modern barley variety. So if you've created a really rich turbocharged soil, if you've got if the plant's got longer roots, it can just make more of that, um, and then the plant itself is going to be more stable. Um, you know, in in droughts, for example, because its roots are going down way deeper. So it's just very interesting to see these old ways connecting um, in in ways which you know we've probably forgotten about um, these days. And as a distiller, as someone, yeah, you know, well, as a as a company who wants to get flavor, that's pretty exciting stuff. This month's Impact Spotlight is on Pocono Whiskey. Sitting just south of Auckland on the North Island of New Zealand, Pocono is one of the Pacific Rim's newest distilleries. Founded by whiskey industry veteran Matt Johns, Pocono set out to create a uniquely New Zealand single malt whiskey, 
one that would bring the lush subtropical terroir into the world's most recognizable category of malt spirit. I've been able to try their origin and their discovery series, as well as a single barrel double matured and ex-bourbon, and each were truly fantastic. And in case you're wondering whether I really do get to try these things that I talk about or whether I even like them, I'm here to tell you yes to both. If I don't like it, I don't have to talk about it. And I can't stop talking about Pocano to anyone who will listen. As of March 2023, Pocano is just starting to come out into the U.S. market with a rapidly growing footprint. I sometimes say that there are distilleries to watch. This is one to watch while sipping their already world-class single malts. Check out my episode with Matt and Pocono in late March, and order your bottle of Pocono New Zealand single malt today. Hey, whiskey ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. To take advantage of this podcast-only offer, please go to smwsa.com, that's Scotch Malt Whiskey Society of America, and put in code WRP for Whiskey Ring Podcast at checkout for 25% off your first year subscription. All right, so uh, before I forget, I actually want to move to the newest products in the Waterford lineup, or some of the newest products. So the three newest ones are, as you were just mentioning, the Heritage Hunter, as well as two new peated expressions, the Ballybannon and Fennis Court. Uh, now, if anyone who's listened to my episode with uh, James Doherty from Schlieth League, you'll know that Irish whiskey used to be peated. Uh, it's not all the unpeated stuff from from Middleton, Irish distillers, Bushmills that we've grown used to over the last century and a half. It it did used to have peat uh, almost across the board. Uh, now, the slight difference there is that unlike in, in Scotland where you had peat as well, but it, P was used as a fuel source just as it was in Ireland, but there really were not many alternatives in Scotland. There's not a lot of wood there, uh, certainly not now, especially. But in Ireland, you did have quite a bit of wood cover, at least in the uh, in the Midlands and and uh, before you got to the really northern kind of tip of it. So wood was available as another biofuel before things like coal and natural gas came around. Well, it's it's an interesting one for Ireland because if you Google now, I don't know what the numbers are top of my head but you know they were talking about um uh banning burning peat for domestic fuel um in i think this is probably a a broader um environmental sort of concern anyway um and interestingly the peat needed for whiskey is different to the peat needed for fuel but there's an alarming amount of people who now are not alarming but if if, if alarming if they're going to cut off this as a fuel source but a good number of people out there in rural ireland are still using peat um, to warm their homes, um, so I think it's 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 sort of more pervasive than it has been in in the UK. You know, don't in Scotland, of course, when the coal started being shipped up by the railways up and down, that's that was a game changer for um, for distillation. Actually, going back to my railways conversation, Mike, I was thinking that, that yeah. on railways, <laughs> um, you know, that was 18, 1850s, 1860s. You know, this development of the railway to Speyside, um, taking up coal. Uh, barley bringing down um, barrels of whiskey um, to be blended in Glasgow and Edinburgh and then further afield. Um, so, you know, I think that that was that was probably the key difference. Of course, that's why Isla retains the peat because it didn't have the railways um, to to really, um, you know, it, it was all by by sea. So, anyway, going to Ireland, um, 
you know, I don't know the the, the precise history of of of, of you know heat and, and and its sort of domestic chore, but it, it's quite a high number of people now still still rely upon peat as a fuel source. So it's it's really been part of that culture. Um, and I think you know it's further down in, in Ireland you've got coal fields and and other things. But really, you know, as you identified and as your other guests have identified, you're surrounded by peat. You need something to create heat. What are you going to use? <laughs> well, how about all of that peat that's just sitting outside? And that's 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 what they used. Um, and that's what whiskey tasted like. You can see adverts um, going back from. Uh, you know, we've got a couple on file. I think it's, it's going up, up north of the border to Bushmills and around. People celebrating the flavours of of Irish peats in their whiskey. Um, this is eighteen, whatever it was. I can't remember now. But interesting, the advertising records are quite a useful um, historical record um, for, for whiskey production. Um, so yeah, the peated whiskies was quite. An in this was an interesting project because there was nowhere in Ireland that could safely safely being the key word um peat irish whiskey or peat whiskey um peat barley anyway um and i can't remember how it ever came um to um well, what was the terroir project um and the peat sort of not not sort of one of our um it, it's not necessarily part of that barley terroir conversation um, except for it makes it very interesting once you peat it and to see the influence of terroir afterwards. Um, so, you know, we decided, well, let's 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 peat some, let's peat a couple of these single farm origins and see what we get. And except, well, there's nowhere to do it in Ireland, um, which presents a bit of a problem. And being us, we have to use, you know, we want to use Irish peat. Um, mm. Perhaps out of stubbornness ultimately, but really definitely out of, of providence. You know, we're using Irish barley everything's done there well we need irish peat as well so um we managed to find a peat source um I mean, the first releases it was from um uh, county kildare um and but then we didn't have any facility well we, we tried we, we experimented i've seen the pictures and it looks hilarious of us trying to build something to do it ourselves um and, and it was a bit of a no-go you have to be really really careful um with peat because it can introduce um potential carcinogens if you're not careful um so it's best left in the hands of people who know what they're doing um so minch malt are part of a broader um malting group um and they have a sister malting facility in glenesk in scotland so we ship our barley and our peat all the way up to scotland across to scotland to be peter and the guys there had never seen irish peat before this was new to them. Um, you know, they used to working with, with with different raw materials, so they had to sort of, what's this? This is this is this is weird. Um, and then um, uh, we did two single farm origins first year, um, shipped it back to still there and kept it a secret, which I'm very pleased with because we're crap at keeping secrets because we get it. I mean, you've heard me; I just waffle on, um, but we like to talk a lot. And I, you know, I, I remember at the time saying wouldn't it be pretty cool if we just sprung this as a surprise on people and didn't tell them um and obviously i don't know a few people did know about it because we are crap at keeping secrets and we do get jolly excited and to be honest there's not a lot you can do about the smell of peat um in production for two weeks of the year when we're doing it um so 
Um, we've then um, branched further afield to different peated sources, different single farm origins. And excitingly, you know, we can revisit some of the farms which were unpeated um, in, in previous bottlings. And we can then compare it with peated versions of, of those as well. So we can have a bit of fun um, with this. But yeah, I mean, it's just it's just this notion, really. This was, um, you know, again, water had been a flavour project. Well, let's let's try different types of, of flavour sources. Um but again, with the with the peat, you know, going to some of our other products, you know, our, our headline acts are kind of with time will be more obviously the cuvées of this world. You know, this idea of complexity. Going back to what I said earlier about complexity of flavour and with the wine world, you know, you source individual components, little building blocks. Um, so different single farm origins, different barley varieties, different farming sources, and then maybe peat as well. And you begin to layer those individual building blocks together to create more complexity there's literally more going on and can you create a sort of you know mind fuck of a flavor experience by putting all of these things together so the peat is really on the one hand yes it's super nerdy yes we can experiment with all these different locations and, and see what we get and peat to different levels um but actually it's just more for the ingredients covered yeah, it's just more for us to sort of put, start to put together and this this is something that will become more apparent with time um as as we sort of you know evolve but at, at the minute we're really sort of showing um letting people play along with us um with a lot of these releases um but and it will become more apparent with time what we can do with these ingredients afterwards um so yeah the pizza it's it's been it's i mean it it's um it, obviously different countries just love their pizza whiskey so it's been quite interesting from from my side to see obviously the germans germans love peated whiskey they probably put it on their cornflakes. They just they just can't get enough of it. Um, so um, it's been quite good to see the different different nations. So, and again, I suppose people who may have been um, not against the Waterford principle, but you know, just parts of the community you know, talking about terroir or who is this Waterford? Oh, and that's not for me. Well, suddenly you've got peated whiskey, and actually that is of interest. Then, so it's been able to bring in the to the conversation people who might have not really contemplated Waterford for a few years and suddenly there's a new interesting thing for them to, to, to talk about and of course the great comparison is how does Irish peat compare to um, Scottish peat and to be able to, to, to taste those so yeah they've been really good fun um, and I suppose it sort of rounds off our you know what we call our Arcadian um, series our farm origins so we you know um, Obviously, single farm origins, the conventional ones, we're exploring terroir. Then we've got in the Arcadian, we've got organic heritage, biodynamic, and now peated. So it kind of rounds off, I suppose, that sort of side of the ingredients cupboard. Um, and um, I think with all of these things out there now, hopefully Waterford makes a bit more sense. You know, it, again, trying to not be in this ghetto of terroir, but terroir is, is the, is, is, our, isn't is it our be all and end all it defines everything you know it's, it is our dna it is our the our entire infrastructure is built around terroir but you no know, i didn't I, I think it's quite good now that people can see that we're not it's not just about terroir and hitting people over the head with terroir which is actually quite an abstract thing and it's been horribly corrupted by people in the industry already um as a term you know there's been all sorts of terms like social terroir have been floating around like what on earth does that mean um just because you don't know where your ingredients come from yeah yes people matter that's wonderful yes everyone has an influence on things but just 
come up with your own word and kind of appropriate another word and try and twist a very technical environmental word to describe the influence on growth and on flavor and make it into something else. Um, so anyway, we're less about Terroir now and actually a fully rounded Waterford project. So people can see, actually, you know, they're, you know, hopefully people see they're very, very, if, you know, if not obsessed, but very interested about flavor maximization. How can we get that most flavorsome liter of alcohol possible with all of these variables? And now people can see all of those variables. Um, so I think that's that's hopefully what the Peter has done and the heritage um, as well. It's it sort of made everyone realize that ah, that's what Waterford is about. And it's it's not just terroir. It's really about all of these you know, flavor flavor that starts with the grain, um, where it's grown, what what type of grain it is and how you grow it and what you do to the grain. Um, it's really all about barley. And the, the peat in particular was, I mean, for me, it was really interesting just because it was for me a, a totally different peat. The only other two peat sources I had had were um, obviously Connemara and, and Schlieveleek. And both of those were using Scottish peat mm. as opposed to Irish. So I had never had Irish peat before. And um, it took a few tries for me to kind of get used to it. I want to say, feel loud the phrase. Like it, it, mm. it was. I didn't think it was bad. It was more that I thought, okay, this is clearly something different. This is a different. Uh, let's let's call it a terroir of peat. I mean, and Ireland itself, like I think something like a sixth, one sixth of the entire island is peat bogs. And relative to uh, other countries, that's an extremely high percentage. It's one of the highest, per, you know, relative percentages of landmass covered in peat bogs. And uh, you mentioned there's a conservation effort to try to conserve those as a carbon sink mm. and and more. But with so much peat available on the island, um, I guess there's a two part question. The first one is why uh, Ballytage as the source in the first place, and then. Um, was there a particular thought or consideration into using these two uh, farms to pair with the peat as opposed to other ones that could have been paired? Yeah. Um, so why, <laughs> why Bally Teague? Um, I, I guess the, the short answer is that was the, the only guy we could find in that period of time who knew anything like we were asking for a very specific thing. We're not asking for peat as a fuel source. I remember I said, you have to get a little bit deeper. Um, so, uh, there's not many people who, yeah, if peat is in, you know, in Ireland, I guess with in Ireland it's, it's to do with things like, um, yes, uh, fuel source, but also um, gardening industry and it gets, gets it dragged into other sectors. But what we're after is something quite specific. And there's very few people who have the, the, the knowledge and the wherewithal to sort of find what we're looking for. It's not like Scotland, it's not, you know, who intimately know what, what you know, the, the connections or the sort of certain, well, who have a, who have a, 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 a con an industry set up around peat sourcing for whiskey that doesn't exist in ireland um so so there's very few people who know um who you know, so, so since then we've been able to explore other peat sources and i think we've been roaming around until we found something um which is um which i think we're we're, we're happy with but it's it, it allows us to sort of play with that variation even within peat um and onto the farm so these first two they're from carlo um, it's it's a pretty good, um, um, you know, they're quite close by. Um, it's a pretty good, quick compare and contrast of, of the you know the influence of peat on these farms. But we're actually moving from farm to farm. We have we last year, 
last year? Yes, last year. Now we 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 distilled um Bano Island and um Ballykilcavan, which we had released as um um some of our first single farm origin. In fact, our, our first two single farm origins back in 2020. So um we've peated, I believe we've peated um the county Waterford um farm as well. So we we're, we're, we're playing around. I think there's not not so much of a logic necessarily around um doing any too far for any specific reason but actually we're just exploring because we can um yeah, yeah we're peating to different peat levels i think i think and the bano island and ballykill cabin went up to 70 or 80 ppm i'll have to speak to neil our, our head brewer to get the exact spec for what we've done um we're actually bringing out another couple of peated whiskies later this year um one of which it will be um lacken which we actually released as a single palm origin to france uh a couple of years ago so um if you can track down that bottling and there should be plenty of it around they're quite big bottlings um then you can compare peated and unpeated and play along and um we're just i mean it, the, the peat is um it's quite good to sort of see the the differences or the influence of terroir and does it stand up to peat and i think anyone who tries these whiskies can tell yeah they is they feel fundamentally different even after the peat and even after all this other stuff which people say oh terroir couldn't possibly exist because of all these variables but we've smoked a bugger as much as we can and still terroir um you know sort of trumps peat so it's 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 genuinely fascinating for, for that reason alone um but yeah we're just having fun we're just having fun with these and that comes across in uh, certainly in how you're describing it, also how Mark describes it, that just having fun. I think you use that exact phrase. That this is all just you're able to play around and have fun with the equipment that you've gotten, the resources available. Uh, which that too, I mean, I I know the the focus on kind of people as terroir as or people as um let's call it the sense of place. That's what Dave Broom's been using, and I I really like that phrase. Um. The when people well, are having it's, fun it's, it's your products, an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting phrase. A, a, a sense of place, a sense of place. Um, I mean, I haven't actually read uh, that, that book in particular, but you know, um, you can get peated and unpeated islands, you can get peated and unpeated space side highlands. You know, it's all, um, yeah, I'd be intrigued to know that sort of the idea of a sense of place, but from our point of view, it isn't actually a sense of place, it's not a sense of anything, it's literally that that place it's 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 directly absolutely totally that place and you can taste that place there's not a sense of anything i think that's where maybe we we would differ to, to much of the industry um and particularly those sort of ideas which i think are very noble and done for good reasons um but we want to be very precise about it it's literally that place it is literally that plant it is literally those compounds coming from here not what um, you know what head distiller Ned had for breakfast that morning, and his feeling, and what he influenced on the spirits, um, or anything like that. It's um, it's the plant. It's literally the place. That's you know that's what terroir really is. And this, I think, this is my beef with the idea of social terroir and these other ideas. They sort of very politely and unintentionally, or perhaps in some cases intentionally, muddy the term, and it doesn't need to be muddied. It's not that complicated. It's the influence of, you know, soil, microclimate, place, the environment on a plant and that plant's interaction with the environment, how that plant grows, 
what flavor compounds we as distillers can get from it and what you can taste in your glass at the end of it. It's very literal. It's very precise. And I think that's my sort of um, my personal sort of um, gripes because I'm a, I'm a words fan at the end of the day. I like, I like words. Um, and I think um, it, it, there's a sort of an unintentional muddying of terroir. Where terroir, just because it's French, doesn't have that sort of literal translation. It, it is, it is quite precise. It is quite, and we, we, it's, it gets muddied, and people can get confused by it. But it's very, it's very simple. Anyone who gardens, you know, know it knows this stuff. Anyone who farms, they they do this stuff. Um, but a French word just just sort of maybe confuses everyone about it, and and then you can muddy it with these other terms. And I just think. It doesn't need to be. It it is. It's actually as soon as you accept this is a very precise, real thing, then just think, just wow, what a frontier that opens up. You know, just simply accepting this, and then right, just go all in and see see what other things you can get from it, um, and what this might do in other in you know in other uh, distilling categories, or um, you know what could you do in in, in England or you know other more liberal you know, more with, with more liberal rules. Um, once you accept terroir, there's so many cool things you could just crack on with. And so just to, because there are so many potentialities there, uh, I think I want to close out with this question about the kind of the 30,000 foot view of distilling in Ireland. So, you know, as we're recording, we're up to, it's over 25 now that are active distilleries now uh, 50, if you include the ones that are coming online in the next couple of years, an insane number that a couple of years ago, no one would have anticipated. Um, and each has had kind of a different experience and each are aiming for something a little different. So for, for Waterford being so driven by this idea of terroir, whatever that may mean, you know, person by person, but also project by project. Um, I'm curious about, you know, interactions with the IWA or, and the kind of authorities in general, like, have you had uh, resistance from them? Have they been supportive? Um, has there really been no issue either way? Mm. Good question. We sort of run in uh, sort of parallel streams. It's, it's almost as if we're sort of, you know, when you're driving those roads sometimes and you see someone driving in parallel roads, but you're not really on the same road, you're just doing your own thing. And that feels very much like us and, and the IWA and much of the industry, actually. We're just, we're doing our own thing. We don't pay too much attention um, to the sort of politics of it. I don't think necessarily they would help us out too much um we're not that interested in in what they um well not what they have to say that sounds a bit facetious but we're just doing our own thing in all honesty um i mean it's a very interesting point about the numbers of producers and the way islands changed in um category and i think it's it's genuinely really exciting actually a really exciting place some really cool um uh things going on but i remember how many years ago going through dublin airport and you saw countless brands on the shelf and there were only four distilleries in ireland and you think well where, where are these all coming from then there are thousands of them um and they're all irish but there's only four to take obviously a lot of independent bottling lots of you know coolie and bush mill stuff being recycled as with all sorts um now the difficulty today is you still travel through dublin airport and there are still thousands of brands and i think you know and the consumer doesn't necessarily know what was the real brand and what is a bottler or what's real? What's a, who's actually a distillery? Who's actually an independent bottler? 
it was it's all very muddied i think this is the legacy problem ireland's got it's not always clear what it is or what the claims are um or it hasn't been i think they're trying to sort it out i mean our interactions with the authorities tend to be um it got moved around quite quite a bit quite recently actually um from um in terms of the label what you can write on a label what your claims can be on a label your statements um it got moved to it's back into the, the government now it was i think it was a separate department that um oversaw these claims and reviewed your labels when you submitted to them um and that's been absorbed into the government now so i'm i'm not sure really what what's um what the iwa is is up to i think the scotch whiskey association um have a closer connection post brexit um do obviously have more of a voice in Europe, considering they, they probably don't have the same voice um, uh, post Brexit. So um, maybe there's more sort of learnings between them that are going on. But like I said, we, we don't really do our own thing, and I don't want to say we don't care in a facetious way, but we don't really care. We don't, we are genuinely exploring flavour. Uh, we're making single malt whiskey. It is, I suppose, the but more traditionally a Scottish style of, of distillation anyway. Um, but we're doing our own thing. We're sharing as much as we can with people. We're as transparent as anyone can get. You know, the bodies that we work with tend to be more like, um, so in Ireland, you've got board beer, which are a great um, um, sort of food and drinks um, uh, body, governmental body. And they do a lot of great promotional stuff. So we were actually, we're now good friends with, with those people. The Organic Trust, um, we're very close to the Organic Trust in Ireland. Um, and Demeter and the Biodynamics Front, that tends to be UK and Ireland um, all in one go. Those are the, the, the companies I would say we have more um, contact with on a, on a regular basis. Certainly, I don't think we've, I can't even remember any email exchanges we've had with um, IWA. So maybe they think very little of us as well. I don't know um, I, I, who, who can say, but I mean, there was certainly, you know, Mark, when he was at Brooklady, you know those those of us with long memories can remember some of the, the antics he would get up to against the SWA. Um, mm. So I guess it, from the get go, you know, he's not really had much interest in in working with them. Now I, I'm, I'm sure, actually, as for the, some of the smaller producers, um, being part of an organisation like that probably gives them a bit more clout. But it gives them more 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 gravity. I mean, it was just back in the day, a few years ago, we did talk about is it worth setting up a smaller independent body. Of, of craft distillers who could do something but that that you know, the problem is we're all small companies and we're, we're too busy doing our own things and nothing ever gets nothing ever gets ever gets done um i mean this is a long and roundabout way just yeah, again just reiterating that point is uh, we've got a very clear idea of what we're doing um and you know mark's not interested in listening to that you know, to other people necessarily um what can they say about distilling that we're not doing already how can they influence what we're doing um i i couldn't tell you i couldn't tell you i think it seems like especially either with the iwa or with the irish technical files whichever way you want to go as long as you're following you know within the guidelines of like you know three plus years the iris the specificities of irish grain and such it doesn't seem like they're going to be going after you like um like the swa went after like highland there's a virginia distillery that used the word highland because virginia has highlands geographically yeah but yeah, they went up. So I guess it, it seems yeah, like they yeah, leave you alone. A very different sort of world, I guess. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a very basic technical file. I know there are some very good um, producers um, who are having all sorts of interesting arguments 
um, about you know recipes and 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 um, what actually I suppose when you get into it, what actually Irish whiskey is because that technical file was written by some of the major companies or one of the major companies really um, a few years ago and now it's actually realised it's got to and that was all right as I said when you had just four distilleries as you walked through Dublin Airport and the four distilleries and a thousand brands um, well you know the technical file was still sort of fit for purpose back then but I guess it's you know that's probably where um, Irish whiskey now has to look is, is to be more inclusive perhaps of these um these craft operators and the very noble and good things that they they are doing but hey we're just doing our own thing all right so i think we're gonna have to leave it there for this episode but um uh, if case you couldn't tell there's gonna be more coming from uh the whiskering podcast and water free whiskey there are several topics still to get to that uh i i hope to have some you know the mark's help have him come back on <clears throat> Uh, have other staff members as well and team members to talk about even more about the terroir and even more about the casking. There's just so much to explore with this distillery and the process they're going into uh, that, you know, I, I certainly hope this won't be the last interview with, with Waterford. Uh, in the meantime, uh, when the, sh- the episode comes out, as usual, there will be show notes with all the links to Waterford, uh, the website where you can buy social media reviews of uh, what I've gotten to taste, and that includes the peated versions, the Hunter, the um, Gaia, Luna, Biodynamic. Um, the Gaia was the organic uh, before I forget that one as well. So there is a lot on the website already, but there's also a lot more to come. So Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to talk through and give us really uh, an in-depth overview of an incredibly complex facility that you guys are working on now and and all the projects that are inherent in that distillery so really appreciate it well it's an absolute pleasure to to speak to you and actually to 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 engage in curious conversation you know it's actually when you when you look at how flavor is made or where flavor comes from that's a really cool conversation um so really pleased to be able to just you know shoot the breeze and like there's a lot of us i mean the heroes are in production at waterford um, there's a lot of us there who and we've got a lot of things to say so I'm sure they'll be um, delighted to, to, to come back fantastic well with that I will see you all next week hang on for the end credits just to hear how you can support the podcast where you can uh, find more information about us and with that I will see you next week and Mark just hang out for a sec with me hey folks thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast if you like what you hear please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating and review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedding.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeymywedding. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content including our soon-to-resume Under the Influencer series, and $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.